Welcome to TNS, the new school at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring nature, culture, and consciousness. Join us now for a conversation with Christina Baldwin and host Michael Lerner. Christina Baldwin, welcome to the new school at Commonweal. Thank you so much. Christina, uh, you and I are friends. Um, you are a speaker and educator who uh, integrates the spiritual journey and the practical path uh, in the work you've done with your partner, Anne Linnea. Um, You've taught nationally and internationally since the mid-1970s, and you've made what is to me a great contribution of classic books in, um, in several fields. One is uh, self-understanding through journal writing. Uh, your book, One to One, Self-Understanding Through Journal Writing, was a pioneering text. You then wrote Life's Companion, Journal Writing as a Spiritual Quest, you wrote a beautiful book, which I adore, called The Seven Whispers. Mm. And then in the early 1990s, you began to develop a group process methodology that led to your uh, groundbreaking book, uh, Calling the Circle, The First and Future Culture, uh, which uh, you did with your partner, uh, Anne Linnea. And uh, you co-founded uh, Pure Spirit, uh, which is a whole methodology um, which uh, organizationally UNN used uh, for seminars, practica, wilderness programs, and worked with uh, healthcare corporations, uh, healthcare delivery teams, university administrations, faculties, graduate programs, churches, uh, and many other ways. Um, so um, that's sort of the more formal dimension of your work, just to put it on the table. But our intention today, as we sit in your living room uh, on Whidbey Island, uh, looking over at the now cloud-shrouded uh, Olympic uh, Peninsula Mountains, is to do a spiritual biography with you. And I'm grateful that you agreed to do that. I'm looking forward to seeing what I have to say or hearing what I have to say. So a starting place is that um, a number of years ago, um, some other fellow Whidbey Islanders, uh, Diana and Kelly Lindsay and I, uh, embarked with other friends uh, in the United States and Canada in developing something we call Healing Circles, which... Um, grows in part out of our 33 years of work at Commonweal in the Cancer Help Program, but also out of your work, uh, your circle work, your peer spirit counseling work, uh, and Parker Palmer's uh, work, a great uh, Quaker um, sociologist and circle worker. Um, in using healing circles um, for cancer patients and for people with many other uh, forms of loss. And um, that developed into uh, a center called Healing Circles Langley, which uh, on Whidbey Island, which Diana and Kelly Lindsay founded. And they really started that work with your peer spirit counseling and took one of your 
your mm -hmm. seminars. And so your work has been profoundly influential to us, really probably more influential than any of the other traditions we draw on in developing our healing circles work. So um, in a way, uh, it's funny, when my wife and I came to uh, Whidbey Island uh, about seven years ago, um, I, 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 looked, I looked upon you and your partner, Anne, with a certain uh, reverence um, because um, I sensed that you had gone very deep into this work, which we were just starting on an outpatient basis. In a sense. Mm -hmm. We'd done it on retreats for 33 years, but the methodology of doing it um, uh, in uh, non-residential uh, settings was one that um, I didn't have a lot of experience with. So I think the starting place for me uh, would be to um, ask you, um, forget about what tradition people are working in of circle work, because they all meld together. If you were counseling someone listening to us on um, the fundamentals of circle work, uh, what would be the key points that you would um, suggest that they pay attention to? Well, I have three levels of response to your lovely introduction. Because this is a spiritual biography, the first thing I want to say is that the circle was a spiritual transmission to me. And it occurred after a very dynamic uh, week with a group of faculty women trying to hold together a 200-woman summer solstice goddess camp. And the only aspect of circle that I saw functioning there, which was actually new to me coming from Minnesota at that time to the West Coast, is the use of a talking piece. And we had so much struggle, particularly in that faculty group, about how to hold the challenges and tensions and, and desires of all these women in this five-day experience, that I went home from that experience asking to be informed. And had for weeks following, I just felt like I was, as soon as my eyes closed, carried away and taken to glimpses around the world. It was one of the most shamanic kinds of experiences that I've ever had in my life. And I emerged from that understanding that circle is a pattern language that is a common source of human society. And so the subtitle of the book that emerged a couple years later from that is The First and Future Culture, Calling the Circle the first and future culture, because I was absolutely sure that the circle was like a social DNA of how human beings can be together. So I think that the methodologies, and then we went in, the two of us from the middle of the country, neither of us with business backgrounds or experience 
running anything larger than kind of solo entrepreneurship ventures. Somehow felt that it was our call to mainstream this work, to kind of bring it in from the coasts and from, you know, de-California it a little bit and and try to figure out how to speak to a, a broader uh, swath of America at that time in the early 90s. Ironically, we then moved to the coast, but we moved to Whidbey Island, drawn here for a number of reasons I won't go into now, but really carrying that Midwestern sensibility. So I think that what I would say to people who want to use Circle is to trust your own DNA and to really think of it as the skeletal structure of social interaction. So I'm mixing the kind of the physical and the non-physical together. But we consider that there's, there is a basic skeletal strength to circle and that we begin to invoke that simply by sitting in the shape. But we are so unaccustomed to it now that we also need to remember the bones. And so for me, the bones are too as best you can gather the right people in the room who needs to be in this conversation. That doesn't mean all like-minded, like-hearted people, but who needs to be in the conversation because you know what the conversation is. And so in the center of the circle, we light a kind of metaphoric fire. And that fire is the purpose, the reason people have gathered together. It could be a very amorphous purpose, like I want a commitment from us to meet for one year around spiritual biography of each other. Or it could be very specific to, we have an issue coming up in this organization or this neighborhood, and I want to gather all the voices. So you create a rim and you create a center. And the center becomes this very powerful transpersonal point so that you and I can have a place to disagree and lay our differences in the middle between us and not feel that I have to cross that space with an arrow of opinion and get your attention by just knocking on your chest till you give in or get more and more belligerent, which is how a lot of conversations go these days. So the creation of that transpersonal space in the middle also invokes the ancient DNA of this. Then there need to be some common simplified agreements of how do we behave in reaching for the purpose, reaching for the goal, uh, watching how that goal morphs in the group process. But we need to behave well together. Circle is not a place that, like an old poker game where you pull the gun out from under the table if things go wrong. And so several roles of leadership begin to emerge. One is a host who is not a facilitator, but is hosting the conversation and participating in it but being very aware of the invitation to an equality of voice. Not, I'm going to tell you what I think and how brilliant I am, and then I'll let you talk. But just really allowing that voice, but correcting the course, just little ways of correcting the course. And to have a partner in that that we call the guardian. And the guardian is watching from the other side of the circle so that there's another 
bringing some kind of non-personal voice. We often use a singing bowl or a chime of some kind that a pause can be called, a pause can be invited to give people a chance to gather their thoughts, to lean back, to take a breath, to acknowledge that something just got said that shimmers in the space and you want to go, ooh, what was that? And so those are very basic. You, you know who needs to be there. You know why you're there. Somebody volunteers to be host and guardian, and then you allow the participation to begin. And you also say that the circle is held not by the host or the guardian, but there's a leader in every seat around the circle. Absolutely. Part- uh, every participant has leadership through his or her own voice, leadership through their skill base that they're bringing. And it's like a bicycle wheel. When it's really functioning, it's exactly like a bicycle wheel. You can't tell what spoke is bearing the weight at any given moment because the wheel is just rolling smoothly down the road. And yet if people start popping out and no longer are attached to the hub, no longer attached to the rim, the wheel begins to fall apart. And what are the simple agreements that you find work best for people? One is to understand confidentiality, that there's a difference between story and information, and that oftentimes getting to a purpose includes very personal story, and that the group needs to spend a little time thinking about what goes out from here and what remains in the experience we're having together. So uh, we often say stories belong to the circle, information belongs to the wider whole. That we institute a practice of listening to one another with curiosity, withholding judgment, and just watch. I mean, judgments rise and fall all the time. Like, get to your point. Please do this. Why are you picking your nose? I mean, all of those kinds of little things. And what I do in myself is I just raise my interior voice tone going, why are you, why are you taking so long to get to the point? So it shifts me from irritation right into curiosity. And as soon as I do that, I get a gift, an insight gift. The third one is to really count on everyone doing their part. So it's ask for what you need and offer what you can right in this moment, from this experience, with these people. And the fourth is to observe and allow the role of guardianship, to invite the pause, to invite the bell, to be a voice in the circle that calls us back to center. You know, as you speak, it's so interesting because I've been involved in work like this in the Cancer Health Program for 33 years. I've done 200 and three week-long retreats as we speak. Um, But part of what draws me to you so much, Christina, is um, that you give me a fresh perspective on work that I've done for 33 years, and you um, you bring a wisdom and depth of experience to it that refreshes me. Uh, refreshes my own um, experience. Um, Before we go further into your work, 
By the way, you have two uh, languages in which you speak of your work, both as pure spirit counseling and the circle way. How are those two related, and do you prefer one to the other in, in describing your work? I would like us to refer to it as the circle way because pure spirit has been identified with the small educational company that Ann and I started, and we're now in, in sort of the semi-retirement phase of that work. So we wanted when our second book came out in 2010, which is called The Circle Way, A Leader in Every Chair, that that really was kind of our culmination book of what we'd learned so far on the journey. In fact, I remember sitting here in the living room and just looking at the galleys and just paging through and paging through and and skimming the whole book side by side. And just both of us, by the end of that time, really crying with the sense of, transmission that we had gotten what we'd been practicing down on the page and and that has really been the book that has gone widest in terms of international application Mm -hmm. so I think the work is getting more and more known out there no longer as pure spirit but as the circle way we were talking uh, before we began and actually on several previous occasions about the history of circle work, both ancient and contemporary. And um, you've written beautifully about the ancient history of circle work and how, as you, you just said, it's sort of part of the DNA of being human. Um, uh, and in that sense, uh, you've got a beautiful passage about um, uh, uh, how when we were cave people or Mm. Neanderthals or whatever we were, that coming together uh, as different different, uh, members of the tribe um, were out hunting or foraging or whatever, and they would come together looking for shelter and warmth and food, and they would come together around a fire. Mm -hmm. And... uh, and naturally, they would sit in a circle around the fire. And so uh, you've described how uh, in Stephen Pinker's work uh, at Princeton um, that the neurological development of being human and language skills co-emerged as mm-hmm. our cultural origin with sitting in a circle and sharing. I mean, we imagine that, but I think it's true because we see vestiges of it whenever we intrude, Western mind intrudes on an indigenous society carefully enough to not destroy it by stepping into the field. That's what we see, is we see circles everywhere. We see circles of the women and the men and the children and the grandparents teaching the children and the cook fires and the council fires. So... We need to, in a village structure, in a tribal structure, we need several things. We need to understand how to govern ourselves, and we also need to understand how to allow other people in, and when you can't allow them in. I mean, we don't have an idyllic history in our species. It's been a kind of a bloody mess from the beginning. But the circle is an antidote to this kind of 
other stream that seems to flow in us about aggression and othering, that the circle is about using and figuring out how to make strangers into us and enculturate us one to another. Mm-hmm. So I see that our kind of aggression yanging out there, conquer the next valley, is counterindicated. And then you have the circle, which says, well, just come in and sit down and let's talk about there's enough bison for all of us. There's enough corn for all of us. Let's do it together rather than you kill me so you can have what I'm eating. Yeah, you just spoke of aggressive yanging, but you didn't balance it with circle yinning. Yes. And I wonder whether uh, you see circle as having, um, in some sense, a more yin quality. I think there are aspects to it that have a yin quality in terms of, I often think of um, the, st- the circles I'm in as kind of a big bird's nest. Yeah. In that it, holding a group of people to some very essential spiritual beauty. Mm. And circles have to have yang. They mm-hmm. have to be able to make decisions. There were among the indigenous uh, peoples in the North American continent, for example, you had a war council. You decided you were going to go to war. And they took it seriously. They didn't just all jump on horses and run off. They had a council about their objectives, etc. So the circle had both yin and yang. And the circle has a great capacity to call people to accountability. And there are indigenous traditions that come out of both Africa and Europe that I've studied. The Basque, for instant, um, instance, in Europe, where you could bring a problem to the council. The council would give you homework to help you in your resolving this issue. But you could only bring it three times because they, they just said, if you haven't resolved this after three times, you're not doing your personal work. You know, don't take up our time. And so theirs was an example of accountability. And um, among the Babemba people down in South Africa, if somebody misbehaved in the village, if they broke the code of behavior, Everyone stopped and surrounded them, put them in the center of the circle, and began to recite to them every lovely thing they had done, to just call them back to the other side of themselves. The circle is profoundly creative in those ways. And I think part of it is maybe not so much a yin-yang differentiation, but kind of an armed-unarmed. And the circle is... It slows you down. It stops you in your tracks. It invites you to sit down, to be at the fire, to listen up, to learn things, and not be so impulsive. You know, this this may be a good place to uh, um, add a note about um, the enormous importance of circle work in Native American uh, traditions. Some some Native Americans prefer Indian uh, as language. But there's been, and we need to note it, a lot of legitimate sensitivity uh, about uh, white people um, 
appropriating uh, the language and practices of Native American circles uh, without permission. Right. Uh, and I think we need to note that because, first of all, it's real. Uh, secondly, as you point out, these traditions are Native American, but also are found around the world. Mm-hmm. And, um, and in truth, there has been, uh, you know, if you look at Toynbee's history of civilization, um, the whole history of, of civilizations is a history of, um, of borrowing and uh, mm-hmm. appropriation from each other. So it's a very nuanced conversation on that point. Um, and I, I, if you have anything to add to that, I just know that for some listeners, that will come up. And uh, there have been instances where um, that we both know of where well-meaning white people have um, borrowed uh, Native American language and practices of circle uh, and have found that this was not welcome. Well, Anne and I, both being white European sourced uh, American women, really from the very beginning worked to bring this language through a Eurocentric vocabulary because that's who we are and it's who we were working with primarily. And whenever we had the opportunity to be in a room that had Native diversity, African-American, Muslim, et cetera, to inquire, how does this show up in your culture, in your language? And we've had our, our moments where people have really questioned us about appropriation, and I wish I had had Toynbee's perspective in some of those moments. But to really say, this is Celtic language. I'm speaking to you in in a Celtic stream of English. You speak to me from your stream. Take it. That's beautiful. All right. Because the bones are the bones. I mean, that's, that's part of it is like... You deflesh us and you line up 25 skeletons. You can't tell what color right. that person was. Right. And so there's the enculturation that's over the DNA, over the pattern language of circle. And part of our struggle right now is, is very interesting to me, this kind of re-tribalizing that's going on in the world a sense of wanting to get back to some kind of basic, but a lot of confusion about what that impulse really is. Yeah, it's, it's very profound. I mean, it's the, it's the clash between uh, the evolution, since the French Revolution at least, of universalist values mm-hmm. uh, with tribal values. Mm-hmm. Uh, the New York Times conservative uh, columnist David Brooks is actually really good on this when he talks continuously about the tension between universalist values and tribal values. And there is a retribalization going mm-hmm. on. 
and um, and and obviously parts of it are are very noxious, and parts of it are a response to the anomie, you know, Durkheim's concept of anomie, of how we feel in mass industrial civilizations right. where we've lost our right. tribal roots, and and some of the tribes are ancient ethnic tribes, and others are tribes that we co-create ourselves that maybe. Yeah actually very diverse ethnically or whatever, but, but we definitely are retribalizing in, in many interesting ways. And as you said, in response to the dehumanization of being held responsible for the economics of the world by consuming more garbage and plastic and, mm-hmm. you know, material goods, like... If you don't buy another television this year, you could wreck the American economy. Well, mm-hmm. what do I do with the one I have? Well, you mm-hmm. throw it in the landfill. You know, so it's, but there is a lot of pressure, I think, that the ordinary human being feels um, through advertising and media, et cetera. Just keep buying, just keep buying. And, um, and that, that is so destructive to our soul that we try to rebalance. You're listening to a TNS Conversation with Christina Baldwin and host Michael Lerner. So we've talked a little about the ancient history of circle work and some of the tensions that emerge around um, the different traditions, uh, the different cultures, and how the bones of circle work are the same everywhere and how you've learned... um, uh, you and Anne have learned to say, we're speaking from a Celtic tradition, tell me how this is done in your tradition, which I think is really beautiful. Um, you and I have talked before, which really fascinates me, about some of the contemporary traditions of circle work. And, you know, I think we both ha- hold a great um, respect for Alcoholics Anonymous, which in the uh, white community, primarily, though by no means exclusively in any way, uh, but in the originally in the white community, it's in some ways the kind of granddaddy of, uh, of the self-help movement and the granddaddy of a lot of circle work. Um, and um, then among the traditions that both of us have been moved by, obviously the first is your work with Circle Way. The second for us is Parker Palmer's Center for Courage and Renewal. Mm-hmm. He's a truly remarkable Quaker sociologist and and uh, and pioneer of Quaker-based circle way uh, work. Um, then there's the World Cafe, which uh, our friends Juanita Brown and David Isaac started in around 1995. There's the Way of Council that Gigi Coyle and Jack Zimmerman developed. Um, and then you've told me about something I didn't know about, uh, 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 Mani Tomquat, who also developed uh, a approach that he also called the circle way that you weren't aware of, but that he did mostly in Europe. So um, what I'm pointing to here is a set of different impulses that emerged perhaps early on with Alcoholics Anonymous uh, and that then uh, was transmitted in different ways as part of the self-help movement, which was a very great movement, by different people in different communities. Um, 
And I know for us in Healing Circles work that we try to um, be deeply open to and actually in some respects uh, revere might not be too strong a word, all of these circle traditions that, just as you said, the bones of circle work are with all of us. So I personally, at least, am not particularly attached to any one of these circle traditions. To me, the question is not which tradition somebody is in. The question is how skillfully they do circle work regardless of the exactly. tradition. And are they facile enough to adapt in the moment to the real need? Right. And it's always attention. Right. Because people bring history, they bring confusion, they bring other experiences, they bring their own agenda, I mean, all these things. So there have been a number of times where I'm having to decide how much to bend to some of those personal energies that show up in a large group or hold the purpose. And I'm trying to listen to a sense of majority in the, in the circle. You can have five people who are extremely vocal who want to come upend um, a three-day meeting, for example, and then you have other people, you have 45 people going, well, I don't want it upended. And I hear them, but can they have a conversation over there and let's hold our purpose? And it's an imperfect struggle. And we just have to, I always have to assume that it is an imperfect struggle and, and that the word idea of perfection doesn't even apply in group process or groups of people having dynamic experience and conversation, but that everyone gets a lesson, everyone gets an insight, everyone gets an opportunity to continue to let it work them. And my fierceness shows up around, I do not want to be passive if harm is starting to occur in that. Because it is a heart-based space. It is a space that integrates heart and mind. And we tend to learn the most in a three-day seminar experience on the storied moments, not on the instructional moments. And in the practica that we have taught now for, we taught for over 20 years before we stopped, teaching, we were training, training, training people and saying, you are not now a trained circle facilitator. You are at the beginning of apprenticeship to this pattern, apprenticeship to this DNA. And it will work you forever. That's right. It lasts forever. Yeah. I mean, I've done the Cancer Health Program for 33 years, 203 retreats, and I still find that there are parts of it I'm not very good at. And that it teaches you. And it teaches me, Mm -hmm. yeah. Which is why people say, how can you do this over and over again? I go, when you're working with other real human beings, you're never in a canned experience. Right, exactly, exactly. So um, that's perhaps 
an introduction <laughs> to this spiritual biography. We've talked about the history of circle work, ancient and contemporary. You've told us a little bit about how you understand circle from your, uh, your uh, circle way uh, approach. Um, and we've, we've talked about some of the, the contemporary versions. So let me step back from that now uh, to say um, uh, this past weekend I was uh, with you uh, uh, at a church in Langley um, where you held a uh, memorial service for your father, Leo, mm -hmm. who uh, died at the age of... 98. 98. Uh, and um, tell us about your father, Leo. Where did he come from? Who was he? And how do you feel his lineage in your bones? I would say that my father represents the other spiritual practice that I started with before Circle, and that is storytelling. That the Baldwin lineage in me is full of extroverted, dynamic uh, storytellers. And sitting at or sometimes even under those family tables, I just, I was fed this, what I call the spinal cord of language, you know, the dynamic up and down part of language that just infuses all the rest of what we know to say, and that is that spinal cord of story, and that there is a narrative structure to language. And for my father, it came both out of the joking and uh, uh, the family tales, but also out of a theological lineage in which the Bible and the mythic tales of Christianity are also their stories. They were never presented as dogma, like you're going to go to hell if you don't believe this. It was like, isn't this an amazing story? And one of the things that I think my father and I have always had in common is profoundly being moved by human reaction to their own values, human reaction to a story, how a story can animate a whole shift in a community. And now that we are, the world is so interconnected that there are stories that animate a shift on an almost global level if we pay attention. And every now and then there is some story that rises to the surface and shifts our capacity to, to see ourselves as a family, untribed for those moments, mm -hmm. like us. And he would be moved to tears over and over again by these moments of story. And it taught me from early childhood on that story is power, and story is spiritual transmission. And story, and I say in the beginning of my book, Story Catcher, we are the only species that is moved to love or hate, war or peace, to include or exclude based on the power of words. 
with no experience. And we see the shadow side of this erupting all over the world now, you know, where people are being excited to hate a group or to distrust a group based on somebody's flippant remark, based on a story that has no bearing in truth or the tiniest bearing. You know, there is one rotten apple in that bushel, kill the bushel. You know, and so it's, um, story is a two-edged power. And I think what I inherited from my father is an understanding of that, both the shadow and the light side of story. And... I don't know. I mean, as, as I contemplate your question, I can go streaming down many, many different time periods in my own life or his life. I think the most profound relationship that I had with him was probably early childhood, you know, sort of a, after I'm weaned away from that mothering and my mother has the next baby and then sort of my father and I from age, say, two to nine um, really were a unit inside the family. And then all other kind of dynamics set in. And then we returned to that in the 12 years that he lived here on Whidbey after he was widowed from his second marriage. And I just helped him plant himself in the village of Langley, but he really made a whole other life here. And very few people arrive, I think, in a new community at the age of 86 going, well, how do I contribute here? What do they need? What am I carrying from those other lives that now belongs to this village? And so a lot of what happened on, on Saturday was people acknowledging his presence in this village and his contribution to it. And I was so moved. You invited me to come. And uh, it was my first memorial service on Whidbey. Uh, there must have been 150 people at in least, the room. At least, yeah. And uh, his contribution to senior housing mm -hmm. was enormous. Mm -hmm. But he held a court in the Commons mm -hmm. uh, coffee shop in Langley. Uh, he had a girlfriend uh, yeah. from... A hundred-year-old girlfriend. A hundred-year-old girlfriend. There was the cutest photograph of the two of them <laughs> sitting holding hands. Yeah. Um, and just all kinds of wonderful stories. Uh, mm -hmm. The time he helped scare away some robbers who were, right. you know coming to rip off an apartment under him. Um, it, was, it was so beautiful. But, but what would help me now, you, you, you read something you'd written as the eulogy, but tell us briefly, uh, you know, who was Leo Baldwin? Where was he born? What kind of family did he grow up in? What, what kind of work was his family involved with? He was born in a, a very small village in west-central Montana, about 90 miles south of Glacier National Park. And his father came into that valley, the Sun River Valley, in 1910 uh, on a mission from the Methodist Church. 
to start up churches for the homesteaders there because it was really in the big push. The railroads had now linked everything and they were advertising all the way to Europe to get white people to come and settle these vast lands. And for $18, you could get 160 acres. And all you had to do is make an improvement on it and and survive three years and it was yours. And so that attracted a huge migration. And my grandfather arrived there as part of that migration and then was assigned by the church to be headmaster of an Indian residential school that was currently going on in an abandoned cavalry fort, which is where the name Fort Shaw comes from. And he was so appalled by what was happening to these children. And he saw into it not only, I saw into it at the level of human suffering, but he also saw into it at a sociological level and as a soul-stealing level. And it changed him profoundly. So he set about helping to get that school closed, and it was closed within the next two or three years. And the children were dispersed back to their tribes. So he did that little part of trying to undo some of the harm of uh, white infiltration across this continent. Then he proceeded to raise the second half of his children very differently than he had been able to manage the four boys born within six years who were just kind of running ragged around the valley, you know. So his whole theology changed, and it was a theology of how do you live an honorable relationship to the piece of land you're standing on, to the people who have been there before you, with you, and will come after you. This was your grandfather. This was my grandfather. His name was? Leo Baldwin. Oh, he was? So he was the first Leo Baldwin. And he poured all of that into his remaining son, Leo Jr. And so my father really, he had a quality of perspective and, and wisdom from the time he was very, very young because he'd been raised in this kind of almost Socratic environment that occurred in the honey truck, driving around managing the bee yards that extended by the time in the 1930s, a 150-mile radius. This was the family business. This was the family business. It was a bee business. You didn't get eight kids through college on a Methodist minister's pittance, whatever the local farmers could pay the pastor. So they ran Baldwin and Sons Beeline Honey. And there is a kind of non-dogmatic spiritual code that emerged out of those two generations of men that my father in uh, really, it certainly took in me, and it took in all four of his children, and that I can see it now dispersing into the grandchildren and into the great-grandchildren, and understanding about the attempt to be an honorable human being, the attempt to make amends, to to try not to do harm. I mean, my father went through a period of time in his life where he had a lot of rage, and that first marriage with my mother included a lot of shouting and um, 
And then he disappeared for 30 years from his family and, and was on the East Coast in a second marriage and doing a, a significant part of his social contribution, but separate from us. And we just all kept living through it and living through it. And then he came back. It was 30 years that it he was, was 30 years from, on the East Coast. From, from how old were you when he left? Um... You know, I was moving around too, but uh, my parents got divorced when I was in my late 20s, and they mm. both remarried very quickly. Mm. So from my late 20s until, you know, my early 50s. Mm -hmm. But when he came back to Whitby, and he was mellowed and kind, and um, really, I think, in, in the most vibrant part of himself... And then we were able to work as a family unit together. And then in the last several years, I've developed a novel that he has been editing alongside me. So part of my... A novel about his life. A, a, a novel about that place and time. I see. And a fictionalized version of the family. And I understand all of this alter ego, the danger of writing an alter ego novel, especially uh -huh. a first novel in your early 70s. But it's working because those people are, are uh, not exactly my family, but they're the struggles that they're living through and the theft of the land and the consequences of the theft of the land when you have the 1910 homesteaders aging out and it's the beginning of World War II. So they're wanting to, to hand this to their sons and daughters and now many of those sons are off in the war. And so what? how do they manage this? How do they get the crops in? The, the government is saying we need 20% more production off of every field in America because we're feeding this, our population and we're shipping it across the sea to three to four million men. So we have 20% more this year, 20% more next year. I mean, I'm learning so much about those kinds of pressures of what's happening on the home front because most of the study and books and storytelling about that time or about the heroics of far away. And I'm looking at what's happening on the land. And of course, the native people are needed by the white farmers to come down and help. And so there's that part of the story is the Blackfeet returning to their own territory to bring in sugar beets. Where were you born? I was born in Great Falls, Montana, in the same hospital where my father was born. 1946. Yep. Yeah. And um, what is your first memory? I think my my first memory is standing in the bathroom when my father went to graduate school in New Jersey and we had a little apartment over the three-car garage because he was caretaking and my mother was housekeeping for a wealthy family and that's where we lived while he was in school and my brother was born into that little apartment in 1948. So I'm about two years old and I'm probably my mother is busy with the new baby and 
And we had this pattern, and he would bring me in and let me watch him shave. Mm. And I just I can get a very visceral sort of the smell, the watching the cream go on his face. And, and he talked to me, and he always talked to me as though I was a real person, just shorter, getting taller, not ooh-goo-goo, you know? And so there was a dialogue that began between us very early on. And if I was really good, he let me flush the toilet. And there was the excitement of standing on that closed seat while the whole machine swirled and swooshed and made noise. So that's, but another story that is between the two of us that I think really illustrates his practicality is when I was, a, um, I was 11 and I had a cat, a little cat that had gotten hit by a car. And so her pelvis was kind of out, you know, she walked funny, she looked funny. Her pelvis had obviously been shoved and broken a little bit. And then she got pregnant and disappeared during a busy family weekend. And I kept saying, where's Patches, where's Patches? We finally found her up in the rafters of the garage and she was trying to give birth through that broken pelvis. Mm -hmm and carried her down to the floor of the garage and realized that she was almost dead. Mm -hmm. And so dad chloroformed her while I held her. And then we did a C-section together to try to save one of the kittens. I mean, to have a father who can sit with you, and of course, I'm sure I was bawling the whole time, but to say, and this is life, this is the farm, this is, this is, a reverent way to inquire if there's something that can come from this. Um, and I, you know, here's, here are the scissors and the knife, and we're going to do this together. Oh. And, and um, this is suburban Minneapolis, so we're no longer out there in that kind of farm environment at all, but I felt like I never lost contact with that kind of source point of, how to be a, a landed person, not a rich person, just a real person who lived off the dirt. And so in this novel, to be able to return to that sensibility and story and to have his perspective and his saying, nope, we didn't talk like that way then, but here's another way of saying this. And here's what I think would be going on in this character because he, at 98, was at that point 22. So he's, he's one of the young guys. He's one of the young bucks in the book, you know? So um, that, that was fascinating. And I'm writing that book hoping that it will call, you know, whoever reads it. I don't know what's going to happen to it. I'm still finishing the first draft. But that it will call us back to some of that, including not romanticizing our tribalism or our gaining of the land, but to really take a look at the complexity of what this continent um, has survived, what we're all trying to survive. And as I, I said there, you know, the beginning of that war, nobody knows who's going to win. Nobody knows. They're, they think they're wiping fascism off the face of the earth. And look where we are now. Yeah. What were you like in eighth grade? Yeah. 
self-conscious, shy around my peers, had a couple of good girlfriends. It was a school with a lot of class issues just by the boundaries of the school system in western suburbs of Minneapolis. And there were the farm kids and there were the rich lakeside kids and I didn't know where I belonged. And I would, I would get up enough courage to go sit at a table in the lunchroom with the popular girls and then they would just ignore me. And so I bonded with a few other sort of brainy girls and we made our own table. And, and that was the beginning of trying to find a place for myself and finding the way. I think teachers saw something in me because I could think. I had been raised to think. You were the oldest? I was the oldest. How many siblings did you have? I have two brothers and a sister. Over how many years? Ten years. Both with your father and mother? Yeah. 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 Okay. And so in eighth grade, your father was still there because he didn't want... Okay. And so you were in Minneapolis? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, did you finish high school in Minneapolis? I did. And then went to McAllister College in St. Paul. And what were you like as a senior in high school? I was the editor of the school paper. I wrote editorials that made most of the kids roll their eyes because I would talk about world issues. And that was a year that Doug Hammarskjöld, who was the secretary general of the UN, went down in a small plane crash in Africa. And I had read markings and was quoting him. And, and I mean, the kids just like, whatever. Um, But that was my job as the editor of the paper is to bring that in. And I was being mentored in in some clumsy ways, but also I think very helpful ways by several English teachers at that time who began to say, you know, you have a voice, write. Um, I had an English teacher senior year who decided to teach me some things. So he took, I was used to just turning in a paper, it would be like two pages of adjectives, trying to make, you know, one or two little points. That's all I could think of to make, but it was two pages of adjectives. And he circled and X'd and crossed out and, you know, gave me an F on the first paper and said, see me after school. And he read that paper back to me, you know, emphasizing all the ways that I was just misusing language and not making points. And I, I look at it now and I think he could have destroyed me, but instead I heard it. And he said, now I want you to write this paper over and over again till I give you an A. Whatever I sign the kids, you write this till I give you an A. And it, it was a huge help to me and, and developed the idea that there was somebody else who cared I was. Uh, In the middle of that senior year was the assassination of President Kennedy. And then at the end of the year, they took the top 10 students and 
this is a class of maybe 180 kids, and they took the top 10 grade students and said, vote who you want to have as valedictorian. And they voted me, which absolutely shocked me because of I didn't feel like most of my peers were paying any attention to my voice. You're listening to a TNS conversation with Christina Baldwin and host Michael Lerner. What was that like? Well, I felt it was a big responsibility. I had three minutes to give the speech for the class, you know. What did you talk about? The same stuff they'd been rolling their eyes at for years, you know. But I talked about we didn't know what we were stepping into and that at 18 and coming through 12 years of school, you can think, oh, I'm so smart. But I said, things are happening out there. You know, we've lived through this assassination, the civil rights movement, and this little country called Vietnam. And I said, I think these are all going to be huge. And yeah. I've, I probably was the first time the word Vietnam had ever been spoken in the, that suburban area. And look what happened within four years. You know, it's funny, I was a senior in college when Kennedy was assassinated, and um, um, and um, I was also one of the senior editors of the college paper and uh, the Harvard Crimson. And um, I vividly remember when, uh, when I was in the newsroom at the Crimson and, and word came that he'd been assassinated. Uh, and uh, actually, I was a junior in college when he was assassinated. I covered the assassination. And then uh, I was the political editor as a senior, and I wrote about the war in Vietnam, which my father, who was a political philosopher named Max Lerner, was in favor of. Uh, and I wrote an editorial for the Crimson called Marching on Machiavelli, because my father had edited a volume of Machiavelli's uh, prints and discourses, and was pro the war. And so my piece, Marching on Machiavelli, basically said, I understand the Machiavellian argument for supporting the war in Vietnam, and we are marching against Machiavelli. Yeah. So it was, a, it was a critical period of, it was a very formative period of time for many of us. So what were you like as a senior in college? Well, I was writing for the paper. Mm-hmm. I wasn't the editor, I don't think. Mm-hmm. But I, I wrote a lot for the college paper. I was one of Jean McCarthy's idealistic, right. you know, very idealistic politically. I had put a lot of energy into what at that time was called clergy and laity against the war in Vietnam. We had a young, it was a Presbyterian school, and we had a young chaplain who was styling himself off of the rebellious chaplains across the country, uh, like William Sloan Coffin, and organizing marches to Washington. And I had this sense, I mean, I had so much idealism that one of the marches, we carried large placards of the faces of napalmed children. and. I was determined to try to get into the halls of Congress and hold those up from the gallery. Because I was 
absolutely certain the only reason that my government was doing this is they really didn't see the consequence. And if they saw a consequence like this, they would stop the war. And it was a huge blow to my idealism to realize that they did understand the consequences and they didn't care enough to stop the war that there were other things at play. And it took me a long time to understand the other things at play in a culture, any culture, that allows you to do that to the innocent and to do it to the earth. You know, because there was also just the beginnings of Earth Day and, you know, what we were doing to Vietnam ecologically was so obvious and on the surface. And my brother who did go to Vietnam in the army is, is uh, quite impacted by Agent Orange. To this day? Very much, yeah. yeah. I mean, not, it's, this is when it's really coming home to roost in uh, COPD and other lung conditions. So. It's so interesting, just, um, we were both the editors of our high school papers, mm-hmm. um, and then we were both editors of our college papers. And while you were, because we're four years, three, four years apart, while you were uh, an editor of your college paper, I was a graduate student at Yale working with my mentor, whose name was Kenneth Keniston, who wrote remarkable books called The Uncommitted and Young Radicals about students. Uh, and he, Kenneth, Keniston and I were on the, Yale Campus Committee on Student Unrest. Uh, And we, um, you know, while I was there, um, there was just this radical unrest taking place on campuses across the country. And I remember taking my younger brother, Adam, who was 10 years younger than I was, uh, to the main town square in New Haven, where there were tanks and tear Mm -hmm. gas all over Mm -hmm. the place. And... Mm -hmm. um, it was a remarkable, uh, and the Living Theater, if you remember them, were, I do. Um, were um, you know, uh, holding uh, extraordinary theatrical performances. Uh, so it was, it was an extraordinary time to be alive and in a formative place. In our, I was the hippie assistant professor at yeah. Yale. I taught the course on the counterculture and so on. So uh, an extraordinary period. So what, uh, uh, what did you do after college? So I graduated from college right on the heels of the Martin Luther King assassination and had spent the last semester with four European girls uh, who were all foreign exchange students in the U.S. And McAllister designed a program called Ambassadors for Friendship because so many foreign students came to the shore, landed in New York, San Francisco, flew to their college and flew home. And they didn't really see America. So Mac put together this program where they got some company to give us station wagons and we carried around little three by five cards that introduced the program and allowed people to sign up and register in a card file if they were interested in hosting overnight a group like this. So I could 
probably recite for you almost every place we stayed for the next month. How many places? Well, first of all, I was dealing with Europeans who thought we could see the entire North American continent. And I said, no, no, we're, we never got east of the Mississippi. McAllister is where? McAllister is in Minnesota. Mm-hmm. So we drove down to Iowa to a Quaker farm family. We drove down to Illinois and visited a young man who was in prison for resistance. We drove down to Arkansas and stayed with this country club crowd, which turned out to be FBI agents, which included their deciding to walk around in their boxer shorts and their um, hidden shoulder guns in front of these young girls. And, And then we made our way down to Mississippi We were staying on a cattle ranch in Mississippi when the phone rang at 3 in the morning and Bobby Kennedy had been shot. So we are now in the deep south. We went down to New Orleans where the African-American people were absolutely distraught. And we got pulled into that side of town and were the only white faces in these incredible funeral marches and dirges and... Um, went over to Beaumont, Texas, where we ended up staying in African-American homes on that side of the tracks. I mean, it was the most incredible exposure. Went into the uh, Navajo Nation, went into uh, to Disneyland and stayed with a couple of John Bircher families while we were Disneylanding. I mean, it was incredible. So... Just as my grandfather had landed in Montana in 1910 and had his whole brain turned around, I had inherited all of that, but my brain was turned around even further Mm. by this exposure, exposure, exposure to people in America. And if we didn't have a place to stay, I would just get on the phone and call local churches. And I remember some little town in Texas. I thought we could get across Texas in a day, and it was like, oh, no. And so we ended up in some tiny town, and I just called the Methodist Parish and said, can we sleep in your basement? Well, most of the time when I asked, said, we have sleeping bags, can we just sleep on the pews? They, of course, brought us into homes. And... We were like the first foreigners anyone in this town had seen and had rich, exploratory conversations with these very isolated, because they brought the youth group in, you know. Hey, you got to come meet these girls from Europe, you know. And, and it was just, it was an amazing foundational beginning to my young adult life. And at the end of that summer, I went to San Francisco and I worked for the American Friends Service Committee as what was called a peace intern and lived in a shared hippie household. What year was that? That was, um, well, it was the fall of 68. So it was 68, 69. So just after the summer of love. I mean, it, it was just an amazing time to be in San Francisco. And then I got invited to go to Europe with a young faculty couple that I'd been very close to and their two little girls, and I'd been kind of an au pair for them. And um, the professor said, you know, I have a year off to write this book on early fundamentalism in America and um, just come along and be my, quote, research assistant and 
be part of the family and let's go live in southern Germany and get out of here and turn around and look back. And so I spent a year and a half there. Where in Germany? It was outside of Heilbronn, down in, in sort of the edge of um, Bavaria and Stuttgart. But one of the most formative things that happened there is then this young radical chaplain wrote me and said, I'm bringing over a group for the month of January to study Christian Marxist dialogue, you know, one of those 414 programs. You're already there. I need another, quote, adult. You're 24. Will you come along and be the other adult? And I said, sure. So I joined him and a couple other faculty and I was a great bridge between the 20-year-olds that were on the tour and the faculty. And most of that group was not at all interested in the Christian Marxist dialogue, not zip zero. The young man had come over thinking they could drink for a month. And uh, there were maybe three or four young people who cared something about the topic. But again, it took me across... The Berlin Wall took me into East Germany and Czechoslovakia and back out and exposed to the Prague Spring, exposed to young people who were really struggling with the world in a very different way than the sort of middle-class white privilege of the college students I was traveling with. So it's like I came back to the U.S., Oh, and then I came back and worked for the American Friends Service Committee again, and they sent me to, to Israel to work in the West Bank. And so I worked in the West Bank and Gaza. So by the time I was 25, 26 years old, I had packed a lot of stuff into my early 20s and came back to Minneapolis just totally adrift, like, well, now what? No, I've been here, I've been there, I've been here, I've been there. I mean, I haven't ever had a real job yet. Um, didn't know how to really launch myself. Arrive in Minneapolis to discover that my parents are finally divorcing. You know, it was just, it was a very chaotic um, end of the 20s. And I began saying to myself, I want to be a writer. You know, I want, I, I want to take all this and write. And the first thing I got published in a national magazine, and I don't remember which one it was now, was about the night in the West Bank in Ramallah with these Arab young Arab kids. And Israel had taken over the movie theaters. So now you no longer had movies coming from Jordan. You had movies coming from Israel. And this group went to see the Woodstock movie together. And this was a group where if there was a girl in that you know, work project, her brother was there to protect her. I mean, these were sheltered Arab kids. And we went to see Woodstock together. And we lit a fire back at the compound where we were all staying together, and we talked till dawn. They had no idea. 
you know, and they were staring at the Western kids like we had all been at Woodstock. And I said, no, we weren't all there, though probably everybody will say they were there. And, but, I mean, it was an amazing dynamic time for me. And then landing back in Minnesota, I really began trying to put it into words. And... So, uh, first of all, thank you for that beautiful description of that formative period of your life. Um, One thing I want to bring into this now is to ask what point in your life you began to realize uh, that you were more attracted to women than to men. Hmm. It was in that Minneapolis period as I was coming back from Europe. And, I mean, this was not something that was commonly talked about until the sort of the feminist movement began rising up. And there were women five or ten years older than me. And, you know, the word lesbian was suddenly coming forward and... You know, I had looked that word up once when I was 14 in my school dictionary, and it said resident of the Isle of Lesbos. That was it, you know. So this was a new churning in there, and I came back continuing to have a kind of social activist awareness and a rising feminist awareness about my, my potential as a female human, as a woman. And... I I called a little consciousness raging group in my living room and I just was kind of in that milieu and somewhere in there I thought, you know, you're getting 80% of what you want from these women and you're dating to try to get, you know, sex or appropriate bonding or something over here and I thought, why don't you just move it all into this basket and... I did. I just thought, without it being a huge, mm, personal kind of of trauma or awakening for me. I mean, there certainly was some chaos around there trying to discern how to partner and where to find other women that I would want to spend time with but I I never went into it thinking I'm looking for my life partner so much as well here's this all this stuff is happening right there Mm -hmm. so how do I step into it in my own way and be my own self so it was it was during that time Mm -hmm. but I had always had a a confident sense of autonomy about my own body Mm -hmm. and been respectful, not ever doing... I mean, there are very few experiences that I've had sexually that I've regretted. And some of them were brief, some of them were long, with both genders, but I just... I have always treated myself with respect Mm. in that way. And How fortunate. I know, and I'm not quite sure where it came Mm. from, but... um, from the time that I had, you know, sort of those 
middle school waking up kinds of feelings. I mean, they were certainly aimed at that time at boys, but I I just, moderation in all things, Mm -hmm. you know. So another piece um, that in some ways is central to this spiritual biography is to ask you um, how you began, when and how you began to understand whatever we want to call God, the divine, the numinous, uh, the spirit, uh, as you look back over your history and taking us up into those mid to late 20s, um, what was your, what was the evolution of, uh, of that experience? You know, somebody once told me, they said it was a Quaker set of questions, but um, three beautiful questions. The first question was, what did you heat your house with when you were little? The second was, uh, who was the human source of warmth when you were a child? And the third was, when did you first know that God loves you? Hmm. Which I've always, I just always mm-hmm. loved those. Mm-hmm. So my question to you is some variant of that. Um, how... How did your experience of God, the numinous, the divine, the the spirit, um, emerge and evolve in your life? So I said a moment ago that I somehow managed to have this kind of autonomous confidence about my own body. Mm -hmm. I've always had that about my spirituality as well. And I remember being probably five years old in this little house in Indianapolis and having a sheet of paper and my crayons and I'm sprawled out on the floor. You know how kids are where they're resting on their elbows and butt up in the air and I'm madly drawing something. And my mother comes into the room and asks me, what are you drawing, Chrissy? And I said, well, I'm drawing a picture of God. And very kind of appropriately, she says, well, honey, no one knows what God looks like. And I just turn to her and say, well, they will as soon as I'm done with my drawing. And that that's a cornerstone story for me. Well, it's a lovely story. Yeah. And then I get to be seven years old, and my parents always went to the church that was most liberal, wherever we were. And so we had gone to the Unitarian Universalist Church for this year, And my Sunday school teacher told me that I was going to get a Bible for best attendance. And I told my mom, we have to sit up front, I'm getting a Bible. And she said, no, honey, this is only the fourth graders get the Bible. You're too young, blah, blah, blah. So we crowd in the back of the church somewhere and they give away all these fourth grader first Bibles. And I don't remember what I was feeling as I watched this play out. But at the end, the pastor says, and now to Chrissy Baldwin for best attendance. And here's this wonking big, you know, maroon King James kind of thing. And I have to squeegee out of the row, the pew in the back. And I walk up to the front and shake hands with this man and accept my Bible. And I turn around and I look for my mother's face and I go, see, 
<laughs> you know? And the, that's another cornerstone story for me. Because I, I had that sense of autonomy. And I was telling that story one Easter in my late 30s to an appreciative audience of people all chuckling. And I started to weep. Because I saw the flip side of it was that I had, in essence, cut myself off from really believing in tradition. You know, that I was my own spiritual authority, which gave me freedom, but it also didn't allow me to be a child of God. I was kind of a colleague. You know, I was I was busy. I was... Um, but I, I didn't, I didn't re- receive instruction easily. I think that not receiving instruction easily goes with uh, being one's own independent mm-hmm. self. I mean, I don't take instruction easily. I've never been good at it. You know, in fact, one of my great horrors in the world is when I'm in a group and somebody announces we're all going to do some practice together and I haven't signed up for it. I know. I just want to run from the room. Me too. (laughs) If I feel manipulated at all, my manipulation factor is like really sensitive. (laughs) But... um, And and another way of thinking about it is you thought of yourself as a colleague of God and not a child of God. And yes, there's a loss in that. But if one thinks of of God as a... uh, as a verb and not a noun, and as a Mm co-evolutionary process that we participate in, in a sense, uh, many traditions would say that you are a partner of God. So that being a child of God is an incredibly beautiful and powerful experience. But so is it a powerful experience to experience oneself as as partners in co-evolution of the divine. Absolutely. And when you're little, I mean, I... I remember liking to kneel, and um, I would kneel by my bed. I would say my prayers, I, but I was self-teaching, like, what is this relationship anyway? And, uh, and trying to bargain with God. You know, like, if there's really, if you're really there, Jesus, then do X, and, and then I'll know, you know? And... Um, in the unhappiness of my parents' marriage. And there was a period of time when my mother kept giving me these books that were very popular in the late 50s about mothers who had lost daughters, you know. And I had, I had like four or five of them, you know, that these heartbreaking memoirs of mothers who had lost daughters to various diseases, et cetera. I kept, but I even then I said, why is she giving these to me? Because I am not going to die. You know, but it was, there was something about the beauty of motherhood, mothering the dying child. And I thought, I'm not going there. But there was a moment that I was outside in the autumn with my younger uh, brothers and sisters. And my parents were having a terrible fight in the house. And I was cleaning leaves out of the gutter. Uh, on a ladder by the garage, and I heard them. And I did say to God, if it would fix this marriage for the children, I would go. 
and my I my father came out of the house and there was I don't remember exactly the choreography of this but I dove into a pile of leaves to hide and he was angry and he gunned out of the driveway and he very narrowly missed me wow and when I rose up out of that pile of leaves I broke that contract and said okay I am supposed to live I mean, so there's there's a lot of that kind of trying to figure out in the context of churchiness and relationship what is the role of spirit. And I, I think it's really impacted, Michael, by the age in which we were having these yeah. explorations because it, I have to keep reminding younger writing students of mine that entire vocabulary did not exist then. And so when you listen to older students in the class talking about an experience that's similar to yours but happened 30 years earlier, there's a whole vocabulary that was missing that we have now inserted into our culture about everything from incest to God to race relations to, you know... So how did that early sense of, you know, I love these stories, but, you know, people don't know what God looks like. They will when I'm finished my drawing. And then you get the Bible and you turn to your mother in front of everybody and say, see. (laughs) And then the, but, and then this incredibly, I mean, just the symbolism of your story of cleaning the leaves in the gutter saying, you know, if if it would fix this marriage, I'd go uh, hiding in the pile of leaves and your father almost running you over and you saying, nope, not going to make that contract. Um, I remember what it felt like to sit up with all those oak leaves just coming. It was like coming out of a total body baptism. You know, it was a resurrection moment. You're listening to a TNS conversation with Christina Baldwin and host Michael Lerner. By the way, you told me what your father was like, but you, and I haven't asked you enough, but you haven't said much about what your mother was like. Well, I think I have. She didn't believe me. She didn't think I knew what God looked like. Right. <laughs> and she didn't think I would, you know, and she was always challenging, I think, some of that confidence in me. Um, Is she still alive? No, she died several years ago, but she lived to 96. Mm -hmm. So I have Mm long-lived parents. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was, uh, I think my mother adored her boys. Mm -hmm. She was very male-focused and... um, And and she kind of just handed me to my dad, Mm -hmm. you know, like, here, you can have this one and I'll take the other three. Mm -hmm. And so that it was a not a it wasn't where warmth and nurturing came from in my childhood. Mm-hmm. So how did that experience of uh, those early experiences of God, um, how did they evolve with you up until your mid thirties, um, as you've described that journey so far? Or late, let's see, late 20s, early 30s, right? Yeah. Yeah. Late 20s, is that where we are? Well, late 20s is when I came back to Minneapolis. Okay, 
And then you went to San Francisco. Yeah. I mean, I was a Quaker in college and into my early 20s. And, okay. when, I came, and when I was in Minneapolis, I went to Quaker meeting as well. Mm -hmm. And... Then in my first long female partnership, I mean, we just, neither of us wanted to be involved in a church for a long time. And then I went through a period of time where I found this lovely Episcopal church that was um, co-pastored by a gay man and a married woman. And I got very attracted to going there. I Where was this? It was in also in Minneapolis. Mm. And it was the first time that I felt sort of accepted as a gay person in a setting like that. Mm. So that was one of the healings. And I also spent a lot of time with formal Christian vocabulary and frame and made peace with it. Was it? It's just instead of feeling like I had to push it around and it, it was a very sweet period of time and I loved kneeling. I'd always wanted to kneel. So here was this whole, I could just go to church and kneel for, you know, and, and take communion. And, and there was a, a moment where the woman priest was holding up um, the Eucharist and she used those words, this is my body, this is my blood. And it's like the whole, just the whole goddess realm opened up for me. And I went, oh, my God, Jesus was a goddess worshiper. He, he understood that, you know, goddess and earth and blood and rivers. And, I mean, it was like everything just came together for me around the oldest religion, the oldest spirituality is based on the earth mother, is based on this is my body. Who is that? You know, the, the deep feminine really woke up in me. And, and This was late 20s? This was, yeah, late 20s. It was probably early 30s. In Minneapolis. Time. Yeah. How were you making a living by that time? Um, my first book, One to One, had come out and I was being a journal writer. And a, a teacher. I was one of the early teachers at a place in Minneapolis called The Loft, which uh, has gone on and is still there much more than it was then. It really was a loft over a little bookstore in the university district. And uh, when I wrote Life's Companion, which was really just as I was approaching 40, then I took that whole career in even a deeper direction because the world was evolving around the power of journal writing and the power of story. In that one-to-one, -one, they had to create a category in the Library of Congress for it because it didn't exist on, you know, psychology and self-help through writing. So you were one of the real pioneers mm -hmm. of that movement. Yeah. Yeah. And then when, by the time I wrote Life's Companion, it was like, ah, yeah. I mean, everybody was, it was like something like 10 million blank books a year were being sold. I mean, it was just a lot. And, it, and now I think it, there's a way that it is in decline because people are texting. I mean, they're using their phones and social media. I mean, if you look at 
the confessional level of social media. I mean, people are journal writing on Facebook. Not everyone, but some people. It's kind of a loss. I think it's a loss yeah. because I don't think it gives you the same thing as curling up with a cup of tea and a blank book and a right. pen. Right. Who's the guy out of um, Texas who's done the journal journaling work on healing and so? James forth? Pennybacker. James Pennybacker. Mm-hmm. Were you? Uh, did you know each other? Mm, not in a professional sense until. In the 90s, there was a woman named Kathleen Adams, and she has called together several journal writing conferences. I've been at all three of them. And so in my, I think it was early 40s, was when she did the first one, and Life's Companion had just come out, and Jamie Pennebaker was there. And, you know, she called together the pioneers. And has done that several times. Who were the other pioneers? Tristine Rainier and The New Diary. Our books came out within six months of each other. Jamie has never written a how-to book. What he's done is really understand the power of writing versus uh, verbal therapy and done a lot of experimentation with that. Um, So you've really, I mean, I knew this, but I'm living into it now. You've really pioneered two areas. One was in the power of journal writing, where mm-hmm. your book actually created the category in the, right. in the Library of Congress. And the other was uh, uh, rediscovering the circle way. Right. Yeah. And one led into the other. And one led to the other, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. Because in the first classes I was teaching at the loft, you know, I came home from Europe, I'm, cast, I'm back in my mid-20s now, and re-arriving in Minneapolis, trying to get my bearings. And I went to the university extension and said, you know, I've been keeping this journal for like 10 years and I've never had a class in it. I don't know if I'm doing it right. I mean, don't you have anybody who teaches journal writing? And they began exploring my background a little bit and they hired me to be the teacher. So I put together a little curriculum and I came in and I had 15 people in that first class and I'm standing up front and they're in rows and I said, this isn't going to work at all because what we're doing here is figuring out how to tell our life stories to ourselves. Let's circle the wagons. So we brought them into a circle and that's the only way I've ever taught. So circle work grew directly out of your The story work. Mm-hmm. The story work. And I never, I mean, it was a very private time and people were breaking. It was, it was like cutting through the crust of something into new language on the page. I never asked anyone to read. What years were this? 1970s, throughout the 70s. My book came out in seventy. March of 77 was the first book. Hmm. And I was 31, Hmm. just turning 31. Hmm. So when did you meet your partner, Anne Linnea? I met her at my memoir class in 1991 in Duluth. She took the class and then came up to me and said, I've never met anyone who taught 
like I teach. And I said, well, what do you teach? And she said, I teach environmental education to teachers. And she had a new book out called Teaching Kids to Love the Earth, and Life's Companion had just come out. And she said, um, you know, a lot of the people I'm working with are really burnt out because they don't have any reflective practice. They're just out there, you know, save the world, save the world, save the world. And I said, well, I'm teaching women where I'm going enough with reflection, get out there and save the world. So we developed a, a course called Women and the Planet, Returning the Gift. And our goal was to bring activists and journal writers together and have them cross-fertilize and cross-pollinate and inform each other. And, and that. Were, you, were you attracted to each other from the start? Yes. Hmm. And that? we were both in other relationships. Mm -hmm. Anne was married with two children, and I was in a long-term relationship with another woman. And mm -hmm. it was um, it was the teaching that really brought us together and held us together and allowed us to come to know each other at the level that we did. Mm -hmm. And then to... Um, with as much integrity and carefulness as we could to crack our lives open. Yeah. Yeah. And what was your first impression of her when you first met her? She was very quiet. She didn't need to put herself forward, but every time she opened her mouth, I went, whoa, she's really thoughtful. Um, was more a vibrational awareness, really. I find that Anne has incredible power. Uh, just um, as you say, she's quiet. She came, as you know, to be with us at one of our healing circles mm -hmm. leadership gatherings, mm -hmm. and. Um, you know, it was a room full of people who devoted decades to healing circle work, you know, body, mind, spirit work. And she just, um, well, she just blew everybody away is what it really is. But um, she seems in your relationship to be more the introvert and you are more mm -hmm. the one that is out their uh, teaching uh, and also that in person there's this extraordinary quiet power which is deeply nature-based. Absolutely. Deeply nature-based. Nature is her teacher, you know. Of course you share a deep nature base, but Yeah, and she has taught me a lot about pace and presence and allowing spaciousness in all groups, really, to slow it down and let the other voice rise. You have this beautiful line that we use a lot in healing circles, move at the pace of guidance. I've heard that line. 
That's your line. Yeah. And what we've discovered over time, for a while I was misquoting you. Let's see, it's actually the line is move only at the pace of guidance, right? No, it's just move at the pace pace of guidance. Move at the pace of guidance. But we realized over time that sometimes that sounds like you're saying slow down, but Mm -hmm. in other times, Mm -hmm. move at the pace of guidance can be lightning fast. Absolutely. Yeah. So it's not an injunction just to slow down. It's it's a injunction. And we really practice that in healing circles. I mean, I've practiced it all my life and my work. I, I never have more than an inkling of what I'm supposed to do next. Mm-hmm. I just wait for guidance, yeah. you know. So it's, it's very familiar to me. As we're sitting here looking out at the... Uh, at the cloud-shrouded mountains on the Olympic Peninsula, a large tanker is uh, making its way past your house. What is this body of water called here? The- Puget Sound. It's an Admiralty Inlet is the part of Puget Sound that's just north of us. Okay. So but- it opens to the ocean, you know, right. the Georgia Strait and the ocean. But is this... This particular body of water, is, does it have a name beyond Puget Sound or just, uh, no, it's just Puget Sound? Okay. I think it's just Puget yeah, Sound. Yeah, Stunning. Everything goes by here. Yeah. Nuclear submarines, cruise ships, container boats, mm. regattas, mm. kayakers, mm. orcas. So what is your current understanding of spirit or... God or the divine? How do you hold that part of your life now? It's really entirely nature-based for me. Um, When the female orca, the mother orca this summer, had a baby who died, and she carried it on her head for five weeks until the carcass of that child had just completely disintegrated in the sea. I was brought to my knees over and over again. And to me, it's like there is the Madonna. There is, it all comes together Everything comes together in nature, in the patterns in nature, in the... We are still just starting to comprehend what this is. Not the world that we have mechanized and made, but the world that we are born into. And... I worship outside. I go outside. I walk the beach. I sing and have fires and I mean it's just very much nature based and um, and you and Anne share that yeah it's it's huge I, I just thank God we share it and I had I don't mind using the word God because for me it's just a code word for mystery mm-hmm. and um you know, Spinoza said, God is nature. Mm-hmm. And of course, it's many ancient traditions, and it connects deeply with what you were saying about your insight about uh, 
receiving the Eucharist and, and understanding that Jesus understood that uh, that the realm of the, the goddesses. Mother, the great the mother, mother yeah. even though he spoke always of the father right. because of his enculturation, mm-hmm. that he brought in the mother through the Eucharist. Mm-hmm. That's why Carl Jung thought it was so important when uh, Mary was elevated. Mm-hmm. Uh, he felt that the that the Trinity had to become the quaternity in order to be mm-hmm. uh, complete in some sense. Yeah. And I, I don't genderize that very much, mm-hmm. you know. I'm grateful every day. I'm aware of a huge sense of privilege and responsibility to be able to live in a place where I can appreciate beauty, where I can go for a walk, where it's safe for me to be outside, where the weather allows me to be outside. And it's one of the reasons we moved here is we wanted a temperate climate that would allow us to be in nature every day of the year and not have it be too cold or too hot or too urbanized or whatever. So, How do you hold the immense tragedy of what humanity is doing to the earth? How do you live with that? I don't know. It's a it's a practice that morphs constantly for me. Yeah, I, I, there are things that I know are happening that I can't look at directly because the level of rage, and it is a holy rage. It is an outrage. I would throw my life at it like a unabomber if I needed to, if I could stop it, if I could alter the course. And, but that's a one-time thing, you know? But I, I mean, even as a young person, there was an oil tanker spill down near San Francisco Bay, and I remember having the thought, I would have put my body there between the boat and the rock without a moment's hesitation to save, to save what was about to happen. And so on one way, I'm prepared to do that. On another way, you only get to do that once. So if I continue to live with it, then how do I work with attempting to awaken, attempting to influence, attempting to um, host the conversations of grief? Yeah. And... So I just, I, I try to be ready for both. Mm-hmm. I talk a lot about women of my age being candles in the window, women play, and men, women and men, who can just light a candle in the window and say, this is a place you could sit down and be heard, but you cannot bring violence in here. That is not allowed, but you can come in and be heard, even in your anger, even in your confusion but no violence. Your little book, Seven Whispers, truly moved me. Um, 
can you tell us uh, what the seven whispers are? I sure can. They relate actually to the chakra, which I didn't intend, but I realized that the first is to maintain peace of mind. Move at the pace of guidance. Practice certainty of purpose. Surrender to surprise. Ask for what you need and offer what you can. Love the folks in front of you and return to the world. How did you come to write that? They came to me. When did you write? It was just be, it was in 1999. And um, it was a very discouraging part of the journey with the circle. It's like nobody seemed to care. We were just barely able to take care of ourselves. Um, I think Anne was working two jobs, you know, just, and I was asking for guidance and one by one, those just drifted into my mind and then they never went away. So. It's a beautiful list. Mm-hmm. It reminds me of Angela Sarian's Four Rules for mm-hmm. Spiritual Life. You remember mm-hmm. them? Show up. Pay attention, tell the truth, and don't be attached to the outcome. Don't follow what has heart and meaning. Mm. Oh, is that in there? Yeah. Show up, pay attention, follow what has heart and meaning. Remain unattached to outcome. Oh, beautiful. Thank you for correcting me. Mm. And there's an eighth whisper, Mm -hmm. which doesn't fit with, Mm. you know, and I called my editor and said, well, there's an eighth whisper, and he said, well, there's something about seven. Yeah, seven is a good you number. Know. But what the is eighth, the eighth whisper? Eighth whisper is notice how help comes. Hmm, that's lovely. What haven't I asked you that you would like to say? I think I would like to say that all of the doing that you have reminded me of today and the different things that to the best of my ability, they have been spiritually sourced, that I consider myself at my best cohabited between sort of the personality level of Christina Baldwin, living Christina Baldwin, and Christina Baldwin serving as a way for some stuff to get into the world that needs to be here. Your sole purpose. Yeah. But, I mean, yeah. There's S-O-L-E. That's my sole purpose. And then there's S-O-U-L. Right. But I just, it's an amazing experience. It feels very shamanic without being showy at Uh all. Um, Being present, listening, feeling things rise up that seem like I'm supposed to do them or say them next. And that 
one of my authenticity meters or inauthenticity meters is when people come in and announce that that's what they do or announce because I think if you announce it you're not doing it and the reason that I want to even say it here in this interview is because the people likely to listen to this are likely to be also doing it and may or may not have language but I think God, whatever that is, is a great nudger. And it just nudges us, little corrections of course, and says, notice this opportunity. And the opportunity may be simply to look into the eyes of a stranger instead of passing them without looking. And you have no idea if you just saved their life. No. And it's really not our business to know. Our business is to respond to those nudges, to stay awake to them, to be racing through the grocery store with five minutes to do this and something happens and all that goes away and an opportunity comes through the world. It comes cutting through your little world. And it, to me, it reminds me of, in the years of my Quakerism, a huge difference between my deciding to say something and my being forced to say something because my body is just inhabited by the need to have this spoken in this circle at this time. And if I bite my lip, that energy goes across the room and somebody else says it. And that was a huge teacher to me. Like, okay, you can say yes to this. You can say no to this. You can say, I am too exhausted. Please let me go. Um, or you can say, fill me up then. Give me the energy to go forward, to be carried. To, It's like at, at my father's service, you know, people... People pay lip service at varying degrees, I think, of, of awareness of, oh, I'm sure he's here with us, he's in the room, etc. And I had an experience before the service started where I had said to him, you know, okay, Dad, you come on. We're gonna we're gonna do we're gonna have fun. I think you'll enjoy it, show up, kind of, you know. And then I set this table with all of his hats and candles and things around and I stood back to admire it and see if there was anything I wanted to change. And through the fellowship hall on a cold autumn day flew one bee right over this table. And I looked at it, I was only maybe 10 feet from it, and I looked at it very closely and I thought, that is not a wasp, that is a bee. And I, you know, and somebody behind me said, oh, look, a bee. And I, and I thought, yes, God, I see that it's a bee. And then um, it took, a, you know, a few seconds or something, and I, I thought, I'm going to go over to the window and take a really close look at this. And there was nothing there. It had flown. It had landed on the window. It was gone. And I thought, okay. But to me, when I say that that mystery, that God sense, nudges us around, it comes in the tiny forms. And, and very, 
if you don't notice it, then eventually you get God's two by four. But but most of the time we just, if we notice it, we get opportunities to be God in the world, to be that, to be a, a, a moment of attention, a moment of love, a moment of restraining somebody and saying, don't do that. Christina Baldwin, you've pioneered both in journal writing and storytelling and in circle way work. Uh, you and your partner, Anne Linnea, have touched countless hundreds of thousands of people. You've deeply influenced our work with healing circles. Um, thank you for friendship. Yeah. And thank you for being with us at the New School. I'm delighted for this conversation. Thank you for receiving my story. You've been listening to a TNS conversation with Christina Baldwin and host Michael Lerner. Thank you for listening to TNS, the new school at Commonweal. The new school at Commonweal is directed by Michael Lerner. Our program coordinator is Kara Epstein. Our audio producer is Ken Adams. And our theme music is by Suzanne Ciani. Visit us online at tns.commonweal.org. That's tns.commonweal.org. Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. You can also find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Facebook, YouTube, and Vimeo. Thanks for listening.